Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Today we're talking about three of the church's favorite teachings that are actually lies, lies that keep victims of abuse silent. Leslie, I remember counseling with a lay minister who, no matter what was happening in my marriage, would tell me, just forgive, just forgive. Obviously, the Bible does teach us to forgive, so why did I feel so frustrated by this advice? Was it wrong? No, it wasn't wrong. It was biblical. It's sort of like the piano. You know, you have 88 keys in the piano, but sometimes the only key you know is middle C. And so sometimes biblical counselors have some knowledge of counseling techniques or what the Bible says about certain things, and forgiveness is certainly one of them. But they don't know the nuances or the other things to do. And so this is biblical, so I'm going to go here. This is biblical, so I'm going to go here. I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'm going to go here. And I think we can take scripture and use it in wrong ways, like Satan did when he was trying to tempt Jesus in the garden temptation scene, when he said, hey, if, if you just trust God and jump off a cliff, you know, God will send his angels to protect you. And Jesus told Satan, hey, we're not going to misuse God's word for these kind of purposes. And so it's very important that we do understand the nuances of God's word. And forgiveness is important. But I was teaching this to my pastors, and I said, Let's use a real life example. So let's say you're in the church parking lot and someone is being a little reckless and they're texting on their phone and they accidentally, not even on purpose, accidentally crash into your car. The airbag goes off. You have a cut on your head. Your front end is all smashed in. Your car has to be towed away. You jump out of the car, they jump out of the car and they say, oh my gosh, pastor, I am so glad it's you because I know that you will forgive me and forget this ever happened because grace covers a multitude of sins. Thank you. And they get back in their car and walk away or drive away. Now our pastors laugh when I said that, because would that be the expectation? Would that be the expectation when you crash even accidentally into someone that you expect forgiveness and forgetting and no consequence to happen. Not at all. And especially if he did it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, then forgiveness gets a little weak as an application to this problem because he's got no concern. The counselor had no concern for the impact that this causes you. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when someone crashes into your car, whether it's on purpose or accidentally, or they do something harmful on purpose or accidentally, and they have no care for the impact they've caused or take no responsibility to make amends or repair the damage they've caused, that says something really important, not only about the other person's character, but about what happens to the relationship. Because the relationship can't be salvaged on forgiveness alone. Yes, your relationship with God is important. And so God tells us to forgive, even our enemies to forgive them. But God never says, hey, and you have to have a relationship with your enemy. They're your enemy precisely because they haven't cared about the impact they caused you. They caused you harm. And the relationship has changed from someone who was a stranger who's now become an enemy or someone who was a friend who has now become an enemy because they have betrayed you and lied to you and show no care for the damage and the impact they've caused. And I think Christian counseling has been so woefully inadequate, especially in marriage, because that is a covenant relationship. And they're expecting this relationship to be fixed and repaired just through forgiveness. And it doesn't work that way. It works when someone also admits that they're damaging the relationship or they've damaged the relationship and they're willing to make amends and repairs. So if I crash into someone's car 
And I say, I expect amnesty because you're a Christian. So bye. Thanks a lot for your forgiveness. And then I keep driving recklessly. How is that good for you? And how is that good for me? But if I am reckless and I crash into your car and I say, oh my gosh, I was reckless. I should never text again while I'm driving because look what can happen. And it cost me you know, a lot of money to pay for your repairs and to rent your car and to go visit you in the hospital and make sure you're okay. That cost me. I better be more careful. It helps both because it helps the pastor know that I cared about what I did to you. And it helps me to say, I don't want to ever do that again. And so when we minimize the damage that's been done under the guise of let's forgive and forget, and let's not remember this anymore, we're not doing anyone any favors. And in fact, sometimes it's really important to forgive for sure, but to remember, to remember. And let me just share a couple of reasons why, because this whole forget is just not possible. First of all, when past history is forgotten, but it's been a pattern in your overall relationship, if there's a pattern of a person crashing into cars and being reckless, the past never stays the past. It soon becomes the present again. And now what? Because we forgave and forgot, we can't bring it up because we're supposed to forget it. But here it is. Cheating is right back. Lying is right back. Pornography is right back. And it's not gone. It's not in the past. And the truth is we're all creatures of habit and we live by our habit patterns. And so when someone's been in the habit pattern of being reckless or irresponsible, or they've been in the habit pattern of lying or watching pornography or being addicted to something or having affairs or being abusive with their temper, that doesn't change just because you wanted to, even if you truly are sorry. How many of us have ever had a bad, for example, eating pattern? We know we're eating too many sweets. We know we're drinking too much beer or something else. And we say to ourselves, oh, I got to stop this. I'm not going to do this tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be a new day. I'm going to forget what happened today. I'm going to start over tomorrow. And how soon do the old habits creep back into the present? All the time, unless you make a concerted effort with accountability and support to change those bad habits. And so we don't forget. We don't forget because we remember we're creatures of habit. And if we forget that, then we're going to repeat the old history in the present day. I remember working with a man who was an alcoholic. He had been sober for about 25 years. And I asked him, why do you still go to three AA meetings a week when you haven't touched alcohol for 25 years? And he said, so I don't forget. So I don't forget that I'm an alcoholic because if I forget and I drink, I will ruin my life. I will ruin my family. And I don't want that to happen. I can't forget because the consequences are too grave. And the same if you're a victim of someone who's been reckless or abusive to you. You can't forget that your brother-in-law molested your child. You may forgive them, but I hope you don't forget. I hope you don't let your child go to an amusement park with him or go for a drive with him or let him babysit over the weekend or even for an hour. I hope you don't forget that he has this problem. And even though he may be truly sorry and you truly forgave him, he still may have this problem and he still may find himself acting out on that problem again with your child. And so forgetting that someone has grievously sinned against you is foolishness because the prudency danger and take refuge. And sometimes it's best to remember and have good boundaries, even when you do forget, even when you do forgive. Wow. I was so confused by that advice, but now it seems so clear. Thank you. There's a second lie. The church often teaches you need to die to yourself. You need to not worry about your own happiness. God will take care of that. You just worry about dying to yourself. You know, I remember hearing that uh, as a young Christian and especially as a young wife, I was at a marriage seminar and this Bible teacher was talking about dying to yourself. And I'm thinking, what does that really mean? Like, here I am 
I'm an educated woman. I have my own ideas, my own opinions on things. They don't always agree with my husband. I don't always agree with my pastor. Does this mean that I'm just supposed to become like a blank slate? Am I supposed to just become what everybody else wants me to become? What does it mean biblically to die to myself? Because I don't think God created me with gifts and talents and abilities and ideas and personhood so that I just erase all that and become one big smiling face in the congregation of Christians. And so I really did a lot of biblical research on this whole concept of dying to self because I kind of didn't like the idea. I thought this sounds crazy to me psychologically. You don't have a self and then have non-self. Biblically, it didn't make sense. So as I began to really study what Jesus said, this is what he meant. He used nature to illustrate what he meant by this. And he said, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it will not bear fruit. So what does that mean? So if you pictured a pumpkin seed or maybe even an acorn seed or a sunflower seed, I just bought seeds yesterday in order to plant some flowers in my garden. If you put a seed into the ground, it has to die to itself as a seed in order to what? In order to mature into the thing that God created it to be. So when an acorn dies to itself as an acorn, so that it becomes an oak tree. A pumpkin seed dies to itself as a pumpkin seed so that it becomes a pumpkin. And even a caterpillar dies to itself as a caterpillar. It no longer is a caterpillar so that it becomes not a nothing, but it becomes a beautiful butterfly. And so dying to self is not eradicating your identity or your personhood. It's a process of maturity so that you don't get in the way of becoming. So your ego and your sin doesn't get in the way of you becoming all that God calls you to be. So dying to self doesn't mean you don't have a self or that you become a nothing. It means that you transition into something more, not that you become something less. And I think that's been an erroneous teaching, especially for Christian women who are supposed to kind of die to themselves as a person and now just become a role. Now you've become a wife and a mother. And so don't think for yourself because you have to submit to your husband and don't want anything for yourself because that's selfish and don't do anything for yourself because that takes time away and energy away and resources away from the family. And you're to just become a servant who just gives and gives and gives and doesn't ever think about what you might want or what you want might think or what you want to do because that's selfish. And that's not true. And that's not what the Bible teaches about dying to self. And so dying to self means it's a transition of maturity so that you become the person that God calls you to be, not the person your pastor calls you to be, and not the person your husband calls you to be. And this is one of the things that happens in a destructive marriage is that growth for a, a woman is squashed under the misbelief that headship gives her husband the right to squash the person she's to be in order for her to be what he wants her to be. And that isn't biblical. And that isn't what God's will is for her. So how do you know the difference between dying to yourself as a seed and maturing? And this is just selfish. Well, selfish is a really interesting topic. And I often hear women think it's selfish to want something, or it's selfish to take some time or energy to do something for themselves. It's selfish to have an opinion about something. And that's not selfish, that's human. And it's not selfish to want something. It's good self-awareness and good self-knowledge. And those are all important attributes of being a mature human being. Selfishness isn't wanting something or knowing something about yourself or asking for something. Selfishness is demanding that you always get it. 
that everybody always cater to you, that everybody always do things your way, which doesn't happen. But just to know that you love to read and you want to read some books and you want some time to read some books or you love to learn and you want to go back to college, even if that takes some time away from being a mom, I think you're smart enough to know how to balance that and how to juggle that. And you can do both. Most of us can. And so you don't need to feel guilty that you don't want to give 100% of your resources to one thing, but that maybe God's calling you to go back to school because you have a higher purpose down the road. I didn't know that I would be writing books after my kids were grown, but God knew. And there were some things I had to learn in the process of those parenting years, not only how to be a better mother, but also how to be a better person, how to grow as a woman, how to be a better counselor, how to be more mature in my thinking so that when that phase of my life was done, I was prepared to blossom into something more. And this is part of our role as mature believers or maturing believers and part of the role of husband and wife that we encourage each other to become more than we thought we could be so that we can become all that God called us to be. And in a healthy marriage, a husband and wife support that growth. They don't try to squash it. The third lie, God calls you to suffer and sacrifice, even if your husband is abusive. In other words, you can win him by your submissive behavior. Is that true? No, I'm just going to say it straight out. No, um, we don't change an oppressor by giving in to an oppressor. When someone's abusive and we are compliant and passive with abuse, and we may have to be because they'll harm us if we're not. I'm not saying that we don't do that strategically, but we don't do that to change the oppressor. Oppressors don't change when you give in to them. They just get more oppressive. And so it's very important that we understand that, of course, sacrifice and suffering and giving and going the extra mile are all Christian teachings. They're good biblical principles. But let's look at five women who didn't do that. And let's listen to what Jesus said to them. So we think about the story of the 10 virgins. And the story of the 10 virgins are there 10 virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom. Jesus says this, and he's coming in the middle of the night. So they prepare their oil lamps and they run out to wait for him in the middle of the night. And five of those virgins were irresponsible and they didn't bring enough oil to last the whole night. The other five virgins were responsible and they took care of their stuff and they brought enough oil to last for the entire night. So the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming and the five virgins lamps were going dim because they didn't bring enough oil. So they turned to the other good, responsible Christian girls, and they said, give us some of your oil. We don't have enough. And what did those Christian girls say? They said, no, go to town and buy your own oil. They had good boundaries. They weren't selfish because they said no to the irresponsible ones. They didn't sacrifice or suffer themselves to cover for someone else's irresponsibility. And so Jesus comes and he commands the five who didn't give their oil. He doesn't say, girls, I'm so disappointed in you. You were so selfish. Another example, repeatedly throughout Proverbs, it tells us not to co-sign on a loan. Isn't that selfish? Why wouldn't we be willing to sacrifice and even suffer if that person defaulted on their loan? Because we're good Christians. But the Bible clearly says, don't do that. Don't suffer and sacrifice to enable someone else's irresponsibility or foolishness to flourish. So let's put this in the context now of relationship. Yes, we're called to suffer and sacrifice, but we need to think about this in two ways. First, biblically, there's times that we are forced or we are harmed by someone. We're raped, we're robbed, we're beaten, we're persecuted. We're not 
in a relationship with this person at all. They're a stranger. They're harming us. The Bible tells us that we clearly have a responsibility to handle our attitude in that place of suffering in a godly way. We didn't choose the suffering. We didn't ask for it. We didn't volunteer for it, but it's there. And how do we handle that? So for example, when Paul and Peter talked to slaves who didn't sign up to be slaves, they're slaves. They're not being treated right. How do you handle that as a slave? Well, Paul and Peter say, hey, you have dignity. You have worth. You have strength of character. You do the right thing. Even if your master is a jerk, you do the right thing because that will empower you to be fully human and less degraded by what your master's doing. All right. So that's no relationship. You don't have a close relationship in those kind of relationships, but this is what you do involuntarily. When you're suffering involuntarily, you can still do the right thing. Jesus says, when someone forces you to walk one mile involuntarily, they forced you. You can restore your own agency. You can restore your own personal dignity and choice by choosing to walk the next mile. You don't have a relationship with a soldier, but you are restoring your own dignity and agency by doing that. However, we're talking about marriage here. We're talking about personal relationships. And so when do you sacrifice and suffer in these kind of situations? In other words, when do you voluntarily suffer and sacrifice? And we have instructions about this too. For example, if you're in a relationship with an irresponsible child, or you have a relationship with a girlfriend and she didn't bring enough oil, or they don't have enough money, you're not selfish if you say no, and you're not to suffer or sacrifice to enable them to continue to be irresponsible or sin. When we do suffer and sacrifice or voluntarily choose to do that, we also have instructions. Jesus says this, greater love has no one when they lay down their life for a friend. Well, laying down your life for a friend, you have this relationship, you are willing to suffer and sacrifice for someone. Why? because you're doing something for their good. So for example, if you were driving down the road and you saw a car accident and the car was smoking and you thought, oh my gosh, I'm gonna try to get the people out of there, you might get burned. You might even get killed because the car might blow up while you're trying to save those people, but you're willing to sacrifice yourself, your own safety, your own well-being, not because someone's being reckless and irresponsible, but because they're in a life-threatening situation and maybe you can help them get out of that life-threatening situation. If your sister finds out she has kidney cancer and loses one of her kidneys or loses both of her kidneys and you donate a kidney because you want to help her to live without dialysis, you're willing to suffer and sacrifice to bring her good. Sometimes a woman in a destructive marriage faces the most suffering when she tells the truth about what's going on at home for her husband's good. I'm, I'm not willing to lie and pretend about you anymore. I'm not willing to cover up that you're not abusing me or that you're not committing adultery multiple times or that you're not addicted. I'm not willing to pretend or lie or play that game. The Bible tells us we're to uncover the unfruitful deeds of darkness and even expose them so that the darkness can come to the light. And sometimes the darkness changes to light. And sometimes the darkness hates the light. We don't know the outcome of that. And so when the outcome is bad, we may suffer. I remember a woman who was married to an abusive man, a physically abusive man. She went to her church and because she was a strong woman, she was a strong woman of character and she was a strong woman in her presence. They said, it's your fault. He's acting this way. You're too strong. You're not submissive enough. You're provoking him. You're making him angry. So it was all about her. You need to be quiet. You need to just submit. You need to do what he wants. In other words, allow him to totally control you and then he won't hit you. Well, maybe, but is that really the biblical solution for him to have total dominance of her and to squash her as a person? Or is it wiser for her to say, hey, 
I want to live with you and I'm going to make this work. And maybe I do provoke you and I'm willing to work on that, but it's not okay for you to hit me. It's not okay for you to hit the children when they provoke you too. Well, her church would not hear that. It was always her fault. It was always everybody else's fault. He's such a nice guy. So eventually what she did was she called the police and they hauled his butt off to jail. And he spent a few days in jail. And guess what? She suffered. She suffered the rebuke of her church for calling in the authorities. She suffered excommunication from her church. She suffered financially because her husband had problems at work then and couldn't support her and their family. But she didn't do it to pay him back. She did it so that he would wake up. And he did. He never physically harmed them again. And he worked on himself in counseling. Oswald Chambers says this, and I'm going to misquote him in some way, but he says something like, a mature saint never voluntarily suffers. A mature saint never voluntarily suffers. What they do is they voluntarily obey Jesus. And if they suffer, then that's what happens. But they don't just volunteer for suffering. We don't just sign up for, oh, I'm a Christian, so of course beat me. Of course, even Paul, who was being beaten, didn't volunteer for that and said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. This isn't okay. And so be careful how we use scripture because sometimes church leaders and pastors misuse the Bible to keep women in destructive marriages, not because they want you to be abused, but because they value the sanctity of marriage more than your safety and your sanity. But I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe the Bible cares about your safety and your sanity. And those are important values to God. And he wants you to be safe and sane. And so it's okay for you not to suffer and not sacrifice when it's not for a noble purpose. So Leslie, what is a woman to do if she's married to a destructive husband and attends a church that has a wrong theology that teaches some of these lies when it comes to marriage? Well, I think the first thing that she's going to have to do is just do her own work. So she's believed the lies too, or she wouldn't keep allowing it to happen. I mean, this may be the first time she's heard it any different with a different twist on it. And she's going to have to do her homework and she's going to have to talk to the Lord and she's going to have to talk to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promises us that the Holy Spirit will guide you in all truth. And you look at the character of Jesus because it says in the Bible that the character of Jesus, who Jesus was in Hebrews, perfectly represents the nature of God. It says in John chapter one, that Jesus came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might see what God is like. So you look at what Jesus is like, look how he treats people. The only persons that he was somewhat strongly harsh with are the religious leaders who thought that they had the right to tell everyone else what to do and how to judge them. For people who are broken and struggling and suffering and sinning and messing up their lives, he was very compassionate and gracious. Prostitutes and tax collectors loved hanging out with Jesus because they felt important and loved and that, like they had some worth and value and dignity. So look at the character of Jesus and ask yourself, is the way my church teaches these things in line with the character and the love of God for me and even for my husband? Or are they enabling his power to grow, his deceit, his self-deceit, that I'm the head of the house, therefore I get to act this way with no responsibility, no accountability, no consequences. That's not biblical and it's not true. God says it's not true. And yet we've made such an idol out of marriage and we've made such an idol out of headship, I think, that we are misusing it and we're using it to hurt other people in inappropriate ways. Not everybody, not all of the time, but sometimes. So if you're in that kind of church, I grew up in the Bill Gothard culture and they misused their scriptural knowledge 
to manipulate, control, and abuse others. I saw it at the time. I didn't like it. And I was an outcast of my peer group because they were all Gothard fans and all going, going to the Gothard conferences. And now we know, now we know the truth that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. So be careful who you listen to, including me. Do your own work. Study the scriptures. Know God. Know the heart of God. And pray that the Holy Spirit, which he promises to give us, will give you wisdom in this area. So that's your first step. Not going in and confronting your church leaders. Because if you're not prepared and you don't know what you're talking about, you're just going to get overwhelmed with other truth, and then you're going to feel afraid again. So do your own work so that you get strong and you get confident. I love the Proverbs 31 woman, not because she was a hard worker. She was, but I love it because it says about her that she was a strong woman and her husband valued that he didn't try to squash that, but it says strength and dignity were her clothing. And she smiled at the future unafraid. You see, when you start to get strong and you stop volunteering for suffering that you shouldn't be volunteering for, and you start speaking out against abuse and oppression, which is what God calls us to do, you're going to suffer in different ways. You're going to suffer the rejection of some of your loved ones. They're going to think you've gone off the deep end. They're going to think that you're breaking up the family when in fact you're not. You're just speaking the truth about the break in the family already. But you need to be prepared for that so that you can smile at the future unafraid, that you can be God's girl and you can stand up for what's right. And you're not afraid of doing that, but you can't do that quite yet until you do your work first. And then as you do that, that gives your husband the best opportunity to begin to reflect about his life and what he's doing and what kind of life he wants to live and whether or not he's willing to look at that or not. And if not, which often is the case, then you have some hard choices to make about what that means for you and the future of your marriage. So Leslie, what if there's a pastor or people helper or someone who does marriage counseling who's listening right now who has taught some of these lies, what would you say to them? Give yourself some grace. I have made all these mistakes. Um, I'll probably do a podcast on people helper mistakes in a little bit. I've made all of them and I've learned from them. So part of maturing is being humble enough to realize you don't know everything that you don't know and you don't know a lot. And so how I've learned this is through God and my own experience with an abusive parent where the Band-aids that I was given, just forgive and forget and suffer and you know have a relationship with your mother when she's still destructive to you. It's not possible. It's not possible. God didn't wire us to have a relationship with someone we feel afraid of and we get intimidated by or bullied. He just didn't wire us to have a good relationship with that kind of person. We might have to live with them. We might have to be in a prison camp with them. We might have to be in a prison cell with them, but we don't love them and we don't have fellowship and break bread together. We can't. We might play act at that, but we can't genuinely have peace because there is no peace. There is no peace. There's domination, there's threats, there's bullying, there's oppression, and the oppressed and the oppressor do not have a true peace. And so if we're going to right that wrong, especially in our families, if you're a counselor who's listening to this, let me give you the first piece of advice. When you have an oppressor and an oppressed in a marriage situation, or you have a chronic adulterer, a chronic addiction problem with pornography or sexual addiction or other addiction, drug addiction, where you have a chronic liar. These are personal issues. These are not marriage problems. Do not do marriage counseling. It only gives the woman false hope and it gives the man the excuse that it's her fault that I act this way. So do individual work with each of them. The woman needs to get stronger and healthier and the man needs to own his stuff and repent and begin to learn new ways before there's a prayer of a chance of rebuilding that broken trust and safety. Leslie, would you please pray for people who have believed these lies or even taught these lies? I would be happy to. 
Father God, I have believed these lies because they do sound so biblical, and yet they're not nuanced enough in every situation. Lord, it's easy to spout off certain things as true for all times, for all people in every situation. And it's not quite that simple. And you nuanced things in scripture. You taught us how to differentiate between people who were brothers and sisters that were to go and confront them and people who are strangers and enemies, people who might even be pigs. It tells you that we're to shake the dust off of our feet or avoid having any conversation at all because they will just trample us and harm us. Father, help us not to assume that everybody is got our best interests in mind. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. You tell us that. You warn us that there are wicked and evil people in this world that masquerade as angels of light. Help us to be discerning and wise, whether we're the victim of that or whether we're the people helper who is trying so hard to know what's true and good and right. Father, I pray that you would continue to give us all wisdom, your wisdom, on how to do relationships because you care about our relationships and you want us to have real relationships that are loving and safe and trusting and strong, not master slave or oppressed oppressor relationships. There is no such thing. There's those roles, but there is no fellowship, no safety in these relationships. Help us to recognize that Lord. And to, as people help us to do the right thing, by the people who come to us for help. And Lord, for those who go for help, that they would be able to discern when that help is not helpful and move on. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that's all for this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. But right now, I want to invite you to be part of our Moving Beyond Challenge starting soon. In this challenge, you will learn how to move beyond overwhelm, negative thinking, and even the fear of failure. Sign up at lesliebernick.com forward slash challenge. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, be sure to hit that follow button. Well, until next time, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.